0: It's a very complex enterprise for for several reasons it's a it's a political problem it's a social problem it's a there's there's geology there's technology all those things but basically a huge part of this is trust building public trust and the notion of putting all the nation's nuclear waste in one state for eternity is a lot to swallow and it didn't work we spent how many 13 billion dollars? over several decades, and we've got nothing to show for it.
1: Okay, welcome back to another episode of Young Professors in Energy podcast. My name is Mark Heinemann, and I'm joined today by Mary Woolen, Director of Stakeholder Engagement at Ultrasafe Nuclear Corporation, or affectionately known as USNC, in the industry. How are you doing, Dave? I'm well, thanks. Excellent. Cool. Happy well, to be here. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We're, we're stoked to have you. Um, I'm really excited. We've got some great questions lined up, and can't wait to learn tons about you and your employer um let's just kind of start start at the beginning. Where where did you go to school? How did you uh enter your career? What were some of your first jobs? Yeah.
0: Yeah, so I'm trying to think of the best way to. So there's the, there's no straight line to where I am and 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 where I started. So um I had a liberal arts education. Uh, really wasn't sure exactly what I was going to do at that time. I I was a major in sociology and anthropology and um after that I actually took a a great american road trip with a friend we bought a bought an old subaru and named it wild thing and headed out west uh with the idea to see the grand canyon and return and get jobs and and make a life i actually in college i i went to a uh a liberal arts college in in ohio uh i will i won't name it (laughs) but um it was a good it was a good school It was definitely I felt a little bogged down by what I felt was kind of um, a preponderance of white upper middle class kids that didn't have to work as hard as as maybe they could or should in my judgment. And I my junior year, I, uh, you know, you could take a year abroad. I went to Africa and spent probably six months there at at a program that was at the University of Nairobi in Kenya. and and it had rural homestays, and we lived with a tribe for a couple weeks. There were just a lot of different elements, and that was really, that was an impactful um, experience for me, and I had developed a profound love for for the country, and so that actually is what I aspired to do with my post-undergraduate work, was to return to Africa and some kind of human service work. So Um, But the Great American Road Trip landed me in Jackson Hole um, in in the middle of a snowstorm um, in October. So my friend and I promptly got a hotel room for a couple days because we had to get the windshield wipers fixed. And long story short, uh, we had our skis sent out, spent the winter, and there were various things that I did over the years. But 35 years later <laughs> so so I settled in Jackson wow. I did I was a ski bum a traditional ski bum for a year um but I was never I always had an itch and so I really wanted to get back into some kind of work that I felt was meaningful in the way again the draw of Africa was always there but I wasn't sure how I was going to get from Jackson Hole to Africa um so I I um after a few years of doing a few different things um I went back to graduate school at in Salt Lake at the University of Utah and got a master's in social work and they got married, moved back to Jackson. And I was the medical social worker at a hospital in Jackson for had two kids and I was living a happy sort of blissful life (laughs) until one day um, I was reading through the paper and there was a letter to the editor uh, from someone in Idaho. You know the, the contiguous state there, for those that yeah. don't have the geography. War, sort of apprising um, people in Jackson it was the Jackson Hole paper that there was going to be an incinerator built at a Department of Energy complex, which is about 90 miles west of Jackson, um, that was going to b- burn nuclear and hazardous waste. So I thought, oh, that doesn't sound very good, and I and I, uh, you know, I didn't really understand what it meant. I actually had a professor in college who had a very radical perspective of nuclear energy. I actually took a January term course where we had the no nukes book, you know, that blue book that, and that was me. And I'm thinking, well, maybe that, you know, uh, that doesn't sound good to me. We need to find out more about that. So I started, there was one environmental group in Jackson and I asked them if they would look into this. And and their response was, um, this isn't a good, not not good timing for us. So oh, so I started started hunting around. I talked to county commissioners. No one was really taking this thing. Turns out, a couple other people were asking some similar question. Long story short, it it, it this blossomed into um, an organization, an NGO that I started um, with a couple other people. It became we bought out some experts from across the country to talk about burning hazardous waste and nuclear waste and um, it, this became like the issue in Jackson Hole. People, yeah. we raised half a million dollars in um, about 45 minutes at a community <laughs> meeting. And um, and then Jerry Spence, who was in a, uh, he's a very high profile defense attorney or was. He's still alive, but he had the leather fringe and the cowboy hat. He defended Amelga yeah. Marcos. Classic, That's kind of a
1: classic Jackson big, Hole look.
0: Yes. Yes. And he was one. He's a one of a kind. Um, he took on our case pro bono. And I sort of became he he and I became sort of the de facto face of this thing. And we were the front page of The New York Times. It was we went back to, you know, to New York to watch it. It just became a thing. The news picked it up. It was sort of the story of it was actually less about. The, the what was happening um, in terms of this little NGO opposing this reactor than it was, you know, p- people love a human interest story. This, you know, sure, retired sure. trial attorney and this young mother of two ch- two kids who quit her job, blah, blah, blah. Um, but anyway, in short order, in less than a year, we won the lawsuit. So we, you know, stopped a federal project that was one of the wow. biggest projects the Department of Energy had going. And... Um, but you know, part of what that was, you know, it was great that we won. They didn't build it. They actually convened a blue ribbon commission to look for alternatives to incineration at Department of Energy sites. So that was all good. But I actually so what, felt
1: what was what was it going to do? Sorry, got was, a, got a so process. there's
0: a lot of waste um, from defense waste at the Idaho National Lab that just okay. sits there. Yeah. But it yeah. needs to be out of the state by 2035. Um, and there's something called the settlement agreement, and mm-hmm. so and all that waste is destined to go down to the waste isolation pilot plant in New Mexico. Um, but there's a lot of it and they're on a timetable. So the optics of it, um, unless you knew differently were that, you know, you could compact this waste by burning it and, and it's easier and cheaper to ship out if it's in a less concentrated form and off you go. And so, um, the problem was when I was asking those kind of questions and trying to get information, they were not forthcoming. Like it, it was like, and and it was almost a shovel ready project. So it it was already like they got they had gotten past the hurdles. I was asking for a hearing in Jackson so we could understand it and comment on it. At the eleventh hour, we got some version of that, but in the meantime, like all hell had broken loose and. Part of that is when you're in a lawsuit, you can't really now you can't even talk to the other side, really. Right. So when this was over um, and people were toasting each other, I truly did feel crummy because I felt like um, we could have done a better. If, if the sides could have talked to each other, we could have understood what it was, what it wasn't, what the safety features were, help us understand those. something. So I actually went over there to the Department of Energy site. The next week, because now I'm running this organization and met with folks, let them see I'm not a demon and they weren't a demon either. Although we we were like, you know, uh, (laughs) you would think we were mortal enemies. We didn't know each other. And um, so so that so for the next probably five or six years, um, I ran this group. And but it was more amicable, like I would go over if they were going to start a new project and I would learn about it. And it yeah. doesn't mean I was if there was something I didn't like, I would say it and we would, you know. So there was we had this relationship.
1: What was the name of the NGO?
0: Um, it was called Keep Yellowstone Nuclear Free.
1: It Keep actually, Yellowstone Nuclear Free. OK.
0: Yeah. And the, and then they, we had this famous bumper sticker called plutonium free powder. And like it was all over the country. I mean, it, it was sort of a anyway. Um, And the idea there with the name was people would resonate with Yellowstone Park, which is right there. So anyway, so I ran this organization for about six years and and I was, you know, trying to keep my eye on projects that they had over there to deal with the waste. Um, And then when Obama was elected in 2010, he gave a speech on television about how he was standing up a blue ribbon commission to to figure out what to do with the nuclear waste in this country. And so, um, the, the first meeting was in DC and I just went out to it to see, you know, what their, what, what the, uh, charter was, who was, who were these people on it? And, and I quickly learned too, that I had, I had sort of a microscopic world of what was going on in our region. And I le- started mm-hmm. to learn a ton about, you know, all the other national labs, all the commercial nuclear waste and, you know, Yucca mountain and all these things. And, um, Anyway, at the end of this end, at the end of these two days of meetings, I went up and introduced myself to the chair and said, um, you know, I think you have uh, uh, a worthy, exciting project ahead of you. Um, but unless you get public buy in, um, if you if you don't create trust from the public because Yucca Mountain had been canceled, um, I don't think this is going to like you could be right back where you started from. Yeah. And he sent someone out to interview me a couple weeks later in Jackson, and then I was offered this job as the Director of Stakeholder Engagement. Actually, it was, um, you were asking what my title is. It was it was um, Government and Community Liaison. In essence, what, what I did in that um, position was, actually, before I even started, I went to a group of NGO environmental groups, convened what they called the Green Ribbon Commission, <laughs> and they all met in Chicago to try to figure out, you know how they're going to deal with this group that was just stood up by the government and i went yeah. out and i introduced myself to people and i got to know all these different environmental groups across the country and and so they met I me mean, some of them knew me because of this is what I, I, I had done the very thing that they're doing and i was trying to say look i'm going to be in this position and i want to use that so that the commission um, i ensure that the commission hears from a wide range of sources so, so that's what I did um, for two years, and we went, you know, around the country, looked, talked to different communities about, you know, the issue, and we went to um, UK, France, Russia, Japan, Finland, Sweden, all these countries where they have a nuclear waste program that's actually working, and mm-hmm. we wrote it. We wrote a report based on the findings of our two years of community meetings. In in each of those meetings, I would ensure that at the table or, you know, giving testimony was, you know, like a utility, industry, a regulatory person, an environmental NGO person. We would mix it up. But I I always wanted that voice to be heard. Um,
1: So the. Did you you feel like you saw progression over time or was it. Kind of like when you're visiting each of these places, did it feel like Groundhog Day where you're giving the same spiel over and over again? Or were some places more accepting or open to ideas and other places more closed minded
0: Yeah. So we weren't a citing commission. We were only there to find out, you know, in other countries, basically, what is it you're doing um, for your program? It was a learning. And then from those learnings, um, we put together a report and there were eight recommendations, you know, and. Cons- you know, you need a consent based siting approach. You need to take this program out of DUE. So I won't bore you with them all,
1: but there were eight recommendations. Yeah. Listeners can go and find the report. Right. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And and so um, anyway, so I did that and I was thinking it. But the whole time I'm commuting out of Jackson Hole and I've got two kids and it was um, it was a lot. I thought, OK, I'm, I'm really happy to get back to my life now. And then um uh, I can't remember the progression, but then I worked for Lawrence. I was asked to work for this project for Lawrence Livermore, um, doing few, they had a project called the Laser Inertial Fusion Energy Program at the National Ignition Facility. Well, I didn't know anything really about fusion, but I know you know I learned a thing or two about community engagement. And again, if you have a new technology, um, that's great. But people have to understand it and, um, you know, be brought into the process somehow in, in order to to get their buy in. And so um, so I did that for. Uh, and again, sort of commuted to San Francisco, And I was doing that. I was bringing in groups from around. Well, actually, uh, some of the nation's um, brightest people in nonproliferation from like the Harvard Con- school of government and um one from stanford who who have a name in non-proliferation so i got them in to see like okay
1: what are you know why was non-proliferation important on the fusion side
0: well so in fusion so you know there's different types of fusion this is the inertial fusion there's some concern that there could that there could be um if you create that type of fusion in the national ignition facility that's a setup for them for a thermonuclear bomb um and you would have so so I, I wanted to learn, you know, all the all the concerns about that. Um, I also bought in environmental NGOs to see, because basically anything with a nuclear name, people were coming out, you know, like, nah. Yeah.
1: <laughs>
0: it was right. a little different Stanford, with fusion. Right?
1: Before, before we coined the term cancel.
0: <laughs> right. But I found yeah. this work extremely satisfying. As a, someone who is now, you know, I'm starting to sort of have this place of stakeholder engagement in different settings, and I'm, I'm learning, you know, ways that work well to do this and, and don't. And I'm also I've met a lot of communities around or, you know, people around the country with different interests. Right. And um, and and because it still has a nuclear tab to it, you know, it it still is, you know, was fairly there were some polarized issues yeah. um with it. Um, but generally that was actually going very well. At the same time, I then was asked to be. The director of stakeholder engagement for the Nuclear Regulatory Commission, the new chairman. And um, I said no a couple times. And the third time I said, okay, but I'll have to commute. So I was a federal employee <laughs> commuting. And, and I would actually, during some of that, I was going from San Francisco to DC, to DC. Wow. doing these two things. But really my main focus at that point, the thing started to really slow down with the NIF for reasons that I don't want to get into, but it got it got defunded. Yeah. And, and that was so a sad- disappointing.
1: I mean, uh I Benjamin JV emailed that I was super excited to see on your LinkedIn page that you work there because I have always been fascinated with the with the project. And it was actually one, when I figured out how to make Google alerts, it was one of the first Google alerts that I set up. So anytime a news oh, article really? came out, yeah, I I was like totally up to speed on the project. But then uh, it actually Because I did that process, I lost some enthusiasm for fusion because I was like, this isn't going anywhere. And every time I get a news article, it's like the same news article (laughs) over years.
0: (laughs) Right. And that was, you know, this is 10 years ago. Yeah. And and Ed Moses, who was who was the head of it, he was really the visionary. Brilliant, you know, physicist and incredible project manager. You got all those three things rolled into one. Exceptionally rare. It was going, you know, it was. It was on a path to succeed. It was defunded yeah. for a lot of wrong reasons, and that was that was a real kick. And you know that was really that was one of my insights into, um, you know, the role that uh, you know the, the the interface between you know government and private sector and labs. And um, it, it was hard
1: infuriating, right? When you're working on a project that gets defunded and it's totally out of your control because right. you don't have any autonomy, you don't have any power to to influence it, and it's potentially a political decision. Yeah. I empathize. With you. Yeah,
0: it was a political decision. And so that that was really that was hard. Um, but anyway, I I so I served for the tenure of the chairman, um, which was almost three years at the Nuclear Regulatory Commission. So I learned a lot about the regulatory environment. You know, just of note, I still at this point, I'm not pro nuclear. I don't I've never called myself anti, but more of a skeptic. But I kind of in my work with the commission and going forward, I don't get into, I stayed away from, you know, are you this or are you that <laughs> because it is so polarized. Nonetheless, there were some at the at the NRC who could barely look me in the eye because they knew my sorted past <laughs> that I started an NGO and couldn't couldn't reframe the fact that maybe it was a good thing that someone has actually opened their mind and progressing and you know, upholding a role. I wouldn't have been there if I wasn't. Um, you know, doing what was needed for the chairman of the, of the commission, but it was interesting. NRC had a reputation at the time as being very closed, and so we were trying to kind of open that up and um, and be better communicators with the public. Make sure the stakeholders were invited to to some of these meetings that they were um, either not having an active role in before or were feeling frustrated by. So so I did did that until. She, uh, um, after those three years. And then soon after that, uh, w- with the new election, um, uh, er- Ernest Moniz, who was on the Blue Ribbon Commission, was was Secretary of Energy. And he appointed people in high places that understood the, the Blue Ribbon Commission um, recommendations and were in a position to sort of get that road. Right. So I got a phone call. Will you come to work um, as a consultant to the department for the consent-based siting project. So mm. so I did that for really up until 2016.
1: Um, so were you part of that, I guess, what, the original report for the consent-based siting? Yeah. I'm really curious about this. So I've, I've gone through that report a couple times. And when you add up how long the schedule is to actually get a consent-based siting mm-hmm. program placed. Like it's a really long timeline. I, I it's, mean, da- like, it's daunting. Yeah. Yeah. It's like 20 to 37 years. Um, was there a conversation around that, but like to try and do it faster?
0: So, I mean, this could be a big rabbit hole and I won't make it so, but <laughs> so siting, sure. nu- citing a nuclear waste facility. If you ask the secretary of energy, Moniz, if he were on this, you asked him how long it would take before this country could have a, an operating facility like Yucca Mountain, he would tell you 100 years. And that's from st- that's from like where we are right now to doing it. So it's a very complex enterprise um, for, for several reasons. It's a it's a political problem. It's a social problem. It's a there's there's geology, there's technology, all those things. Um, but basically, a huge part of this is trust, building public trust. And so for you to find a community that's willing to accept this, you have to, and, and right now there's a deficit of trust. So there's a lot of work that has to be done to be able to, to establish, you know, an organization, administration, or a private entity like a deep isolation. Um, the technology is not the hard part. It's not, but it's a, the politics are hard, you know, it's a, the, 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 the time frames of four years for like the, the program dials in, dials out, dials in, dials out. And then the state, you know, Nevada was never they never raised their hand to be the nuclear waste um, repository. Um, and so you to put it in a state that doesn't want it. Um, and maybe they wanted it when they raised their hand. But then eight years later, they don't. So the politics are all wrong. That was an appealing thing of deep isolation because. It doesn't operate on so much those political cycles in the sense that the notion of putting all the nation's nuclear waste in one state for eternity is a lot to swallow. And it didn't work. We spent 13 billion dollars and over several decades and we've got nothing to show for it. So so the idea that maybe the waste would be stored or disposed of near the place where it's generated. In smaller configurations, that has some, you know, that has some appeal to me. Unfortunately, you know, deep isolation. They're still, they're still working at this and making progress, um, mostly overseas right now, because the the politics are still on, on the books. It's still Yucca Mountain. You couldn't, you couldn't get these facilities licensed if you wanted to. Um, but I think okay. there is as another a, approach.
1: As a technologist or engineer it's so hard for me when it's like, guys, this isn't a technical problem. Like we know exactly how to do it. And it's a people problem. Um, which is, yeah, like you, like you said, much, much harder. So.
0: Yeah. So then the consent based signing program, we actually, there was another piece in there just sort of boring, but I actually, there was an effort at department at department of energy for six months where we took the, took the report and turned that into kind of an actionable plan, um, for for Congress and you know for how to, how to implement this, there's a little bit of a clash when you get consultants and federal employees kind of just getting your cadence. But you know we had a team. We actually went around the country. We we did what it is we were setting out to do. We we had I can't even remember like eight different community meetings around the country where we met with um, you know in different cities to see like wh- how would you like to see a consent based siting program designed. We're not there to say, can we put it in your community? We're simply trying to set the program up for success. And that was actually going well. And then the 2016 elections, and um, let's just say a change in administration. And um, and the Department of Energy became a different, it, it really, um, there were some shockwaves inside of what, what the work was, how that stopped, and really um, the consent-based siting program went away. And in fact, even that name became like something consent-based siding so i so i left um in in late uh, late 2016 early 2017 um and, and then i and i moved to well i had moved to minneapolis just before that because i was tired of the commute from jackson i want to be closer to dc <laughs> so 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 i move here and the elections happen and then i'm not working in dc anymore so um I, I then got a call from, um, soon after that, there was a the deep isolation you had asked about. It, it's, a, um, company in California that was, uh, doing, um, boreholes for nuclear waste. And so I did that, uh, stakeholder engagement, um, for about three and a half years and then, um, year and a half ago, moved to USNC because the, the program was, was so stalled out the back end of the nuclear waste. There was no active program. And I just, at that point, felt like um, I learned about this technology um, and was comfortable with it, This the, the size, the scale, and the purpose of really decarbonizing sectors of the economy that are more challenging to do. So, I mean, replacing diesel providing heat and steam for industrial operations, that sort of thing. So I jumped in whole hog about a year and a half ago, and I've been doing that since.
1: Awesome. That's uh, What what a story. Wow. Thank you for kind of walking us through that so far. Um, I'd, I'd love to dive in a little bit about USNC, um, how you got involved, the overview of the company. Um, yeah, let's dive right in. Yeah.
0: So it's founded by um, Francesca. Francesco Veneri, who was, he worked in the lab system for a long time. Um, he's Italian, uh, really the story of, um, of USNC was it was after Fukushima, he had this, you know, um, thought determination to design a reactor that couldn't melt down. So that was, that was the sort of, and, and, and so he designed this, it's a high temperature gas reactor really around, um, the fuel, so yeah. so in, in essence, the engineering is all is based on these um, the fuel type. So it's it's something called tri- tri- triso particles, right? Yeah, yeah, triso tri structural isotopic um, particles, and it's essentially the uranium with you know it's coated in ceramic layers, and then it has this silicon carbide matrix on the outside, and that's that's a differentiator if USNC has. Um, And that's a patented um, process It's a differentiator from the other types. A lot of these different reactor um, companies use triso fuel, but this is the only one with the silicon carbide. And so um, it really, you know, from a physics standpoint, it's almost impossible for that fuel to to leak. And and also the physics of the reactor, it doesn't achieve temperatures that could cause, you know, could be hot enough to damage that. So I would never, after all I've been through. So this 20 years ago, I started an NGO in a very sort of anti-nuclear space, and so I've sort of come around now. It was a hard leap to make. I got a lot of um, shame <laughs> on you, or like treated like Judas.
1: You're but I, the bad guys. You're going on right? the dark side.
0: <laughs> but I feel like what I what I wanted to say to all the to everyone is that I think you know we all owe it to ourselves, our future, our kids, our everyone, to keep an open mind and evolve with the information that evolves. And that, you know, this reactor is vastly different than a light water reactor. I don't think that the existing fleet of light water reactors are, in fact, really that dangerous. I used, you know, there was there was a time I was, you know, felt differently.
1: Yeah. I mean, the data shows compared to every other form of energy generation, uh, they are one of the safest if not the safest uh, kilowatt hour in the world
0: but my space and all this work i'm i'm less interesting probably to you and your viewers in in terms of you know the the actual technology its applications all those things but that you know the bottom line is that the, the my last 20 years in these various positions i've it is the most polarized subject um You know, I I did. I've done countless public meetings. You're either on this side or you're on this side and it's very little space in between. And it's really almost when there's not until there's a problem out there, do people come to the table and then it's really a race to like whose information are they going to listen to? And it's not a good, responsible way for people to be learning about an energy source, whether they're they're learning things that are. You know, um, helpful in an optimistic way are things that you should be concerned about. It's sort of the wrong way of interfacing. Until you can get that right, doesn't matter what you have. Um, yeah. So I felt like this company, Francesco Benari, he for ten years they they sort of built this, designed it, stayed kind of in stealth mode, um, and didn't pop up until they really had something to talk about a defensible design. And and at the time that I joined the company, they had. A, a project that is progressing up at Chalk River Labs in Canada. And and that is to go, um, they're going through the licensing process now. It's a joint venture with the Canadian government, Ontario Power Generation, and USNC. And um, that should be in operation by 2026.
1: Oh, man, that's yeah. that's exciting, right? Just four years away.
0: Yeah, and so also the University of Illinois is um, they're they're putting in a research training reactor, and so we're working with them, and that's been you know very, very, I'm not doing the stakeholder engagement for Canada. That's actually being done by there's a joint venture of USNC and Ontario Power Generation called Global First Power, and so it's the oh, yeah. there's a. They're doing the stakeholder engagement up there, and the guy who's doing it is doing an excellent job. But I, throughout the lower 48 and the upper, I'm I'm kind of spearheading those projects. So awesome. I've been kind of a business development role, which is not my niche. It's sort of a little bit out of my comfort zone, but I've really enjoyed it because um, the, the CEO paired myself and this engineer together and really mu- pretty much just set us out to go – um, see what the market was, see who was interested, and the first trip we took was to Alaska, and drove around the state, talked to, you know, people in ac- academia, utilities, industry, um, NGOs, uh, uh, Native Alaskan communities, and yeah. um, long story short, there is we met with a utility, and um, after some back and forth, the, the numbers matched. They use hydro in the summer. The rest of the year, they're using diesel and NAFTA, um, and they're looking for something different. So we're, we we signed a cooperation agreement. We just finished up the feasibility study. It will actually be finished. It's, it's done. It's being edited now. Um, is this with
1: a utility or a community in Alaska? Yeah.
0: No, it's called Copper Valley um, Electric Association. It's a utility. Awesome. Well, yeah. Okay. And it's, a, you know, a small cooperative. And um, and we've, you know, we've gone back and met with the delegation in, in D.C. The governor, they passed a microreactor bill up there because um, and did that in one session last year. So we, we've been heavily involved in what's going on in Alaska. We're actually going to put in a bid for the Allison Air Force Base RFP. Which should be coming out soon, um, and other um, there are other projects. So I've That's been awesome. at the at the table at the start of these conversations, which has been really a pleasure for me because I'm not a salesperson, I'm not a public relations person, but I want to be at the table to um, you know build credibility for who we are, which is basically you know we have this product that can do these things and and you know being able to describe that answer questions and if people aren't interested it's fine like um we'll, we'll go somewhere else
1: there there's, unfortunately, there's lots of people that are probably going to be interested yeah. there's
0: there's a lot and so and it's it's actually so, so for this it, it, it's actually almost more than
1: we can keep yeah, up with it's, right. it's a growing there's, company brought a lot, brought of, a lot
0: of people yeah. in um
1: but so i'll say it back or try and summarize real quick that, just for my sake and hopefully for our listeners' sake, but I mean, your guys' innovation was to repackage the fuel specifically and take kind of these defense in depth methodologies of you need to have multiple layers of protection. Um, Cause really like the, the fear that everyone has is that the radio are going to get, into the atmosphere in a gaseous form somehow and be carried to a town that people then breathe in and it gives them acute radiation poisoning, right? I mean, there's a ton of studies from the early 1900s that people breathing in radon gas and all the mining that happened in Navajo Nation is very, very dangerous and it gives people cancer, gives people lung cancer. Mm-hmm. Um, and so if you can somehow package the fuel so that it is virtually impossible for it to escape as in a gaseous state, um, then you kind of eliminate the hazard or greatly reduce it to a um, level that it, it really becomes inconceivable in how this would get into the public sphere um, right. or into the public biosphere. And you guys specifically, I mean, the triso fuel was invented by the government forever ago, right? Or it's been studied for a long mm-hmm. time in yes. multiple yes. countries. And that's just, you've got a uranium pellet that's encapsulated by multiple layers and it makes this little BB mm-hmm. b- that's like a couple mill- millimeters. But then you said the carbide or silicon carbide facing mm-hmm. um, that's just like puts it into another layer yeah, it's like, so sil-
0: so yeah the silicon carbide matrix is you know so it's like essentially like tank armor <laughs> yeah um, yeah yeah so and and then the other thing is then you know the the life of the reactor de- is de- depends on how it's used if, if if power is drawn from it for you know 24/7 um 10 years uh, if it's intermittent or you know, it's grid stabilizing. It can go up to 40 years. So yeah. you still have nuclear waste, right? But the waste is, you know, the 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 power density and the and the you know the reactor is different, and you know the physics of it are different. The fuel is not as hot radioactively as it is from a light water reactor, so it doesn't need to sit in a fuel pool, it still right. you know needs to be stored and transported, you know, all, all the things that nuclear waste, you know, in its in its transition. Um and, and that's a question people have and we still don't have a good answer for that, right? Um it's a federal government's responsibility.
1: Don't have a political answer. You've got a technical solution. I've got a bunch of technical ideas for how we could deal with that.
0: <laughs> okay, well we'll talk after. Um yeah. but but and, and so yeah I mean but that's something that the company is, you know, you could just say it's a federal government's problem, you know, and they'll take it when they're ready. Hopefully in 10, 40 years, there will be at least an interim storage. But actually, USNC is is we've got another plan for if a plan B if the government doesn't come through where, you know, a storage capability or otherwise. So that's something I've really pushed on because I don't want to be part of something that's um Producing waste without at least some some more, um, you know, articulate.
1: I think, I think it's a big business risk, right? I mean, the we talk about this yeah. oil and gas a lot, but you have to have a social license to operate. And if right. you don't have a solution right. that's to a glaring problem that everyone talks about all the time, right, Right. rightly or wrongly, um, right. whether it's a big problem or a small problem, that many people in the industry would say it's not a problem. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> There's just so little right. of it. Okay. Um, but you still need to have a solution. So I think that's that's a good strategy on your part. Yeah. Looking at Alaska Mines and Chalk River Project, I mean, I feel like any clean energy project like, you know, Tesla's Gigafactory in Austin, right? That mm-hmm. like you can throw up one of these power plants right next to and sign the deal similar to what X Energy just did now. I mean, you guys, are you guys thinking about that?
0: So there's all kinds. There are a myriad of applications, and right, and there are other there are other vendors out there that have reactors of you know one megawatt, 10, 75 small, you know, micro small modular reactors. There there are a lot out there, and we're all sort of you know there there's some competition there, right? And so, yeah. but they're different markets, right? So USNC isn't there to light up a city so much, but you know it can do grid stabilize, it could complement other sources, right. um, it could be used for in Alaska. You know, heat for a fishery, and so that's not only good for the fishery. They, uh, you know, right now they're sending a lot of their product down, you know, to Washington because they can't afford the the what it costs to cool the facility and power what needs to be done. So it's a it has a value added aspect too. And so, you know, so there's all those things, right? You, 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 there's there's no end to the potential, but it nuclear still um, is a you say the word and, in you know, for still so many, it, it just stops. It, it, yeah. it's not easy. There is nothing easy when you put nuclear in Now, people who are comfortable with it and understand it just don't, you know, like are impatient with that, just, but you can't deny it. And, and so it's not like you've got this perfect solution here are these problems. Let's just go. Um, so you've got the public perception issue, which is real. And it's still it it's changing somewhat, um, and part of that is people I think just learning about what are these new reactors and people being you know intellectually honest with themselves about are you, okay you're worried about climate change and you've always been anti nuclear, well think about climate change. <laughs>
1: they seem pretty you, inconsistent.
0: Will you be open to learning about this? You know I'm yeah. I'm I'm feeling very impatient whether it's someone on industry trying to pull the wool you know like not being honest with the general public or people in environmental groups or people in environmental groups who are not taking in the information and they're sticking to their narrative at a time when I think we need to be doing a little bit better. So this is the challenge and this is why the stakeholder engagement piece and almost every project that we're doing now is I'm I'm hearing from our CEO, you know Mary, this is <laughs> this depends on you. Well, that that's a bit much, but truly um you know it is you, you have to have that piece. you have to have the social acceptance yeah. the social license otherwise it's going to be uh you know hard delay a, yeah.
1: i've, I've otherwise, seen it too they many times regulations and kill your project
0: well the other thing is the regulatory process and mm-hmm. it's a it's a rigorous process um and for these you know, emerging fleet of of reactors and small modular reactors and they they're, they're redoing the, um, you know, the procedure at NRC, you know, the the pathway by which you apply for these licenses, but right. um, it's extremely expensive. It's extremely rigorous. And um, so with good reason, but I, you know, hopefully there'll be some um, w- with small modular reactors, micro reactors w- with the new guidance they're developing, the, the new licensing process, That it'll take into account the way in which these reactors are different because right now you're having to apply on the same criteria as the as the uh, as the light water yeah
1: yeah yeah part 53 is supposed to change that i've heard right some people think it's it's too rigorous and still still too much regulation some people think it's not enough
0: Um, exactly exactly
1: um what what strategies or techniques have you seen to work best for stakeholder engagement and to, to really, it, you know, win people over. Cause I feel like, like you said, people, this is a very polarizing topic. People are often on one side or the other and they have their mind made up. Um, what, what strategies have you seen? And that maybe, you know, it's part of describing your own journey. Um, like you, you already have, but walk us through kind of, if somebody's interested in educating their friends or their community or, um, increasing stakeholder engagement, much as like they do.
0: Yeah, and so so there's whole, like, there's all, you know, there's different presentations I've given and others have given, too. I'm not the only one that does this, um, about how to do stakeholder engagement. And there's no secret sauce, and there's no, it goes like this. It's a very iterative process. But I would say, to, a- answering your question, you, you, first of all, you have to be, you have to really, you have to value the, um, that, your interaction with that person. You have to be curious and you you want to be curious to know what they're thinking, even if you don't like it, even if it it runs counter to what you believe about the reactor or whatever. Because when you understand that, then you gives you an idea of some assumptions they're making and way information that you can provide that, you know, to put out there for, you know, consideration. You, You can't go into it with how do I turn this person? You really have to go into every You have to it's not outcome. You can't you can't go into these interactions with the outcome or the goal being, you know, to to turn someone. I think if you engage in an authentic process where you are you are asking questions, you're you're listening, you're repeating back. You're taking their input. You're being thoughtful about it. You let them know what you've heard. You you then share that with the people that you're working with. Sometimes you can make adjustments in what you do or you take their suggestions and you, you know, maybe put something on your Web page that answers this question or when generally when people see that they're being heard Mm -hmm. and and not just showing up and, you know, talking and then you go away and you never reach out to again, but that there's something authentic there. That that's where it starts, and yeah. and sometimes um, those people will come, you know, will come to a different view of things. There there's a subset, unfortunately, as I was talking about the polarization. Um, truly, it is it is it is very those that are very entrenched, you know, ideologically and otherwise. And I'm not saying that in a critical way, but they they have their views. There's almost no chance that they're going to embrace whatever it is you're talking about but you know what you've met with them you've heard them you thank them you they feel valued and that that actually works in your favor that's a good thing right. it's just um and then most people are in the middle like 15% are you know opposed 15% are in favor there's this huge audience in the middle that's who you want to try to reach and you want to, um, again, kind of do it in that way. You, 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 you listen, you you don't, I don't even like the word educate because it's sort of a talking, like if if you just knew what I knew, right. You, you want to find out what their curiosities are, what their assumptions are. And then you, you speak to that, you provide information. Um, you ask what else they need to know. You know, there's just a whole process that is more, um, humble and, um, and and geared toward a discussion and engagement and people start to feel a part of something it can it can tear down the um the the defenses so
1: i like that advice it's uh, what i heard is understand before being understood i love that that phrase Mm -hmm. and meaning you know understand another person's viewpoint before trying to um relay what you want them to understand and the facts and um perhaps letting them have a natural curiosity about it. Um, and I, I think it takes time too for people to evolve and digest and get multiple viewpoints and get more outside points and, and information um, past just one person spewing perhaps their agenda.
0: Right. And I go back to what I've sort of lived the different parts of this now, you know, being that person in an NGO, you know you you get you get your narrative and you you get your shields and there's Mm -hmm. nothing that and so so now i kind of know the game you know and so but i also know what would have helped then too if someone would have just said let me sit down mary i want to hear where you're coming from what's what's concerning to you and just start from a different place it would have been a different outcome so so that's what um you know i try to do and there's different you know in Alaska, it's fascinating because you know we're meeting with Alaska Native um, tribal groups. We're meeting with fishery. You know, you just your your audience. You want to be able to understand you know their perspectives, what and what their experience has been. You know, um, and then you 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 know you you gear yourself accordingly. There's there's not just you know um, one big audience you're speaking to. Yeah. So it's yeah.
1: Um, I, I poised this question via email. Um, so I'll try and be succinct in how I ask it, but my, my personal perception is that everyone that I talk to within my circles, probably 80 to 90% of people support the industry. Um, but those same people also know, and I put no in air quotes that, you know, 60 to 90% of everyone hates the industry. And so it's like, there's this mythology around how unpopular it is, even though everyone likes it. Um, is that consistent with what you found in your engagement and outreach or are there a difference in different demographics or different areas? Um, talk, talk to me about that.
0: Well, I could get myself in trouble. So, <laughs> but, you know, so I don't really I can't comment on your I, I don't you know, hear your quantification of it. Sure. Maybe, maybe it is. um I, I like what you said. It, it's sort of a way of, of giving a um, sort of a truth to something that is uh, not well articulated. I, it, it's like nuclear, everyone likes
1: it, but everyone knows that nobody likes it.
0: <laughs> right. And so and it's interesting when I tell people that now what I do now, I find myself like, OK, um, you know, I sort of load myself up to wait for a deflection or something. I would say um you know, nuclear is still a word that has a lot of connotations with it, and it's also—and um, I mean this with due due respect—it's it's very misunderstood. The, the associations of nuclear are so strong, and they are still with us in in varying degree. That um, you drop that word into anything, and it it changes a conversation. I so I
1: should don't. We, should we rebrand it? Just we're doing fission energy instead of
0: no so i'm always the one that's like no you call a spade a spade people are saying well just call it a battery like no because then you then then you're hiding behind it like
1: it's hard, you have it's hard to, be to recharge able- it yeah
0: yeah well i don't know you know i but- i like to call it what it is but the but the problem and the opportunity is that um it, it pe- people, the technology can be understood. I am not an engineer, a nuclear scientist, physicist. I am sociology, anthropology. Um, and really, to me, it's about people. It's always about people. All these things are um that we're talking about come down to how we behave in the system. The technology is different. You know, it's, it can stand on its own. You can measure, you can quantify, you can do all those things you're saying. This you can't and it's ephemeral in some cases. And I think that, but to to stay on point and answer your question, I think that people's views are changing. Um, I think that, you know, our policymakers who are Democrats, there are some environmental groups now that are bringing that into the fold. I think that's because the track record has been proven to be not as abysmal as as people say it is. And I think that um, the fact that it produces, it's not a deal with the devil that it produces you know basically carbon-free energy um i think that people are understanding that uh you know it's not the evil that it has been that some some painted to be and so time will tell um i think that you know that it is changing but it's still um it is still you drop that word and it's a conversation changer
1: okay well let's uh pivot to the questions that we ask all of our guests Um, and I'll let you answer this first one either personally or um, perhaps from the view of USNC but what's what's one thing that keeps you up at night about the energy industry Um, either you personally or you could answer perhaps the USNC's biggest challenge or um, task that you guys are trying to tackle right now
0: yeah yeah and so the literal answer to your question is um, I'm at the this is my last act of my career Um, i sleep at night and 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 so you're like nothing uh, the things that keep me up at night are about late stage parenting um (laughs) and but i spent many sleepless nights early on with this stuff i so anyway uh, funny but not i think that it is important to (laughs) um you know work-life balance is an important thing so i just want to say that to everyone that's listening um the USNC, you know, the biggest challenge is probably keeping up with the opportunities, um, and I don't mean that we're what a, what a terrible problem. man. Yeah, <laughs> I don't mean that we're behind the ball, but um, there needs to be. We need people who are going into this field of nuclear engineering and physics and social sciences. We need it all, and um, and we need to hire people. You know, in this field, it's niche, but it, you know, in some ways. The, the the reactor part, the the nuclear engineering part is, but um, it is a discipline, multi-discipline field, and so I think we we don't just need you know the engineers and the scientists in it. We need um, policymakers, so social scientists, and they need to work together and and not in silos. And that's the thing that I guess you know would metaphorically keep me up is that. Um, we are not, there's not alignment of all the different disciplines. And that goes for nuclear companies. It goes for our energy picture in general. People are trying to win the race and use, you know, get there, get their, um, you know, whether it's, you know, their startup, their technology off the ground and elbows are being thrown. And we right. don't have a coordinated strategy. And so um, I think, you know, for whatever. Whatever field that one takes up um, in the energy field, it, like you have your own lane and it's really important to do that work, but you need to always be interfacing with the other people. That's why I make it my business to sit in those meetings with the engineers and the scientists and the C- CEO to make sure that whatever they're doing, it's socially, de- it's defensible. It can be spoken about in public. It can be understood. So working together is is. Um, the big challenge out there.
1: That's great. Yeah, I, I love that answer. A positive answer. Um, our way to spin that. So, what what advice do you have for young professionals in the energy industry?
0: Well, I guess kind of what I just said. Um, yeah, is, I was going to say
1: you kind of answered the question. Well,
0: okay. <laughs> get get your rest. Work hard. No, so whatever it is that you do, you are a specialist subject matter expert. It is so things are getting so specialized now, and that's great. But keep talking to the people that work around you and whether it's, you know, in your virtual office or down the hall, like it always has to be has to knit to the other parts. And so um, I guess, that you know, keep keeping it in, integrated would be yeah. would be my word of advice, because the siloed working, um, it, it creates more problems um, than it's trying to solve.
1: Okay. Well, Mary, leave leave us on an optimistic note. And I mean, the fact that USNC trying to keep up with the demand uh, is incredibly optimistic in my mind, right? I mean, you guys will be a large consumer of Triso fuel, and hopefully the market reacts to that to be able to manufacture it more and increase the supply chain. But where, where do you see all this going? What's the future look like in the next two, five, 10 years?
0: Yeah, so I'm not a great prognosticator in terms of, you know, the energy field writ large, but I will say this about USNC, and I'll say it about, you know, all the other, uh, whether emerging technologies or existing. Um, And this was a line that um, was in the Blue Ribbon Commission report, and it stood out for me. And it's usually on the tip of my tongue, I wrote it down, but we know what we have to do, we know we have to do it, and we even know how to do it. So, I believe that 100 percent. And that is that is all optimism. So but we need to do it. We need to learn from past mistakes. We need to work together and we need to thread those things because it sounds so pithy. But to know what you need to do and to have the tools to do it, um, we, we've we got it. We just have to figure we have to work with each other um, and figure out how to do it.
1: That's fantastic. Couldn't have a better than that. Very well. Thanks so much for your time.
0: Okay. Thank you very much. Been a pleasure.